0: Is that two thumbs? I can't tell if it's two thumbs. Okay, (laughs) two thumbs. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Join me, if you would, in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 12. Last Wednesday, we wrapped up the last details out of the um, study of uh, Jesus' final sermon in the temple. The seven woes upon the Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And um, the last paragraph that uh, dealt with uh, what we were looking at there. We're moving on today to a new episode, episode 11. Episode 11, of course, uh, the numbering is based upon our harmony of the gospel. Each of the the major sections uh, restarts a new numbering system. So when we reached Jesus' final work of week, week of work, that is, Jesus' final week of work at Jerusalem. We uh, restarted the numbering system again, and we are now at point 11, the poor widow's offering. I don't have my notes. Let's see. No idea. Okay. The poor widow's offering. It's only four verses. Let's look at it, and then we'll open in prayer. Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury and many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she owned, all she had to live on. Brings us to the end of chapter 12, just four short verses. When you turn over to Luke 21, you'll notice it's still four short verses. It uh, it actually begins a chapter instead of ends a chapter in the uh, versification breakdown of the Gospel of Luke, and it's almost word for word. Uh, in, in fact, in English is going to be virtually word for word. There are some Greek differences. Uh, Luke 21, he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them, for they all out of their surplus put into the offering. But she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. All right. Uh, the Mark account is longer, it's more fuller, and so that's the one we'll spend most of our time in. We will glean some details out of Luke as appropriate, but basically we're going to spend our time on the Gospel of Mark this morning. Before we do begin, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Of course, this comes about as we are in fellowship, confessing any sins that need to be dealt with, and uh, humbling our heart under the teaching of God's Word. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing that we have to assemble together today. This is uh, indeed our uh, tremendous privilege, Father. 345 times we've had an opportunity to come together uh, and to study the life of Christ. I thank you for this class. Uh, there's something special about this class, Father, on Wednesday mornings. and It's, uh, it's intimate. It's, it's uh, precious. And Father, we're, uh, we're turning our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And so, Father, it is a delight to study his ministry, to listen to his teachings, to learn from his example. And, Father, uh, once again today, we're looking forward to uh, the teaching that you have for us. So set aside distractions, hedge us about, uh, protect us, Father, from anyone that would want to come in here and bring us to harm. Father, uh, minister to us from the truth of your word. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. You know, it is absolutely humbling to understand the role of the Holy Spirit in teaching, of course, and in coordinating things, the role of Jesus Christ as head of the church. Uh, But, you know, you have a study like the life of Christ, 345 lessons long at this point, started way back in 2004, in 2004, you know, when uh, my son's a (laughs) 12-year-old, all right, And uh, I mean, this is going back, back to those days and whoever would have thought, obviously human reasoning can't plan this, that uh, we would arrive at the widow and her two mites uh, at the very same time that in second Corinthians, we are in chapter eight and chapter nine. We're dealing with principles of grace. We're dealing with grace giving. We're dealing with all of the uh, associated doctrines and principles that relate to how believers orient towards money. And so uh, here it is. It's just a, a beautiful thing. So tonight we'll be back in Second Corinthians chapter 8 as a part of that series, which is 240, 245 lessons or something like that. And uh, coordinating amazingly well with where we are here in, uh, in the life of Christ. All right. Once again, Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44. Now, to set it in the context, um, it is noteworthy, one of the unique episodes of all the episodes we've ever studied, to find the ones that are limited to Mark and Luke. In other words, Matthew doesn't record this episode. This is really interesting, and it appears to be originally, uh, if if you accept that Mark was the first written gospel, I think Matthew was the first written gospel, but either way, uh, did Luke... Uh, Did Luke have uh, access to Mark's written gospel before he wrote his? I think he did. Uh, We told in the early part of Luke that he did uh, reference other written accounts and so forth. Uh, But this is uh, something that Matthew chose not to include as he uh, taught the the great discourse of, uh, of Matthew chapter 23. And so... It's good for us to understand that for its context, that he's given a very hostile message, given a very lengthy message with those seven woes. And, um, and then on his way out, he takes a seat, <laughs> as it were. And so in verse 41, he sat down opposite the treasury. And, uh, and I accept that that's a, a legitimate reading. There is a, a textual variant there. Certain scribes and later manuscripts actually change it from sitting down to standing up. Um, as far as that goes but for the first point of study point one in the outline shortly before departing the temple for the last time jesus sat down and observed the treasury deposits shortly before departing the temple for the last time i always like to in every one of these life of christ outlines i like to kind of set the stage with point one to kind of frame the entire message as far as what is it setting what is its context and uh and so this is what we have the the, the seven woes of Matthew 23, and he's hitting them harder and harder and harder and harder. And he wraps it up. And uh, I would think after a, <laughs> after a class like that, yeah, I'd probably go take a seat myself and, uh, and then uh, wait for whatever it is the, the disciples are doing. Uh, it is noteworthy. He sat down. There's no reference to his disciples here. And so it's it's been speculated by different commenters, uh that maybe they uh, they drifted away during the, the the harsh message that he just kept railing on the on the Pharisees, scribes, and Pharisees, hypocrites, again and again and again and again. And so, what happened to Peter and Andrew and James and John and these guys? Did they just kind of kind of drift away? Did they find other parts of the temple to go hang out in? Did they, you know, were they legitimately? Um, Involved in other activities, we just don't know. They're not mentioned, and so to, to speculate is, is never going to be conclusive. But you'll note, he's sitting here and he's making his observations, and then I'm going to really stress the expression in verse 43 where it says, calling his disciples to himself. In other words, that they, they had departed. Either at the moment he sat down, they went off to do whatever, uh, or they actually had departed before he sat down. And it may be that's probably more likely the case that they they really weren't his intended audience anyway for those woes and so forth and so they they found elsewhere to be or they had maybe they had other legitimate business you know they had food to purchase or they had uh, you know offerings to give or or they could have had any other reason for, for not being there and that may also explain why he took a seat <laughs> he was done with his class he's ready to go back out to the Mount of Olives for the night he's been doing this every night this week. Uh, he's been coming into the temple in the morning. He's been going out to the Mount of Olives in the evening. And uh, and so uh, it's quite likely that, yes, the, the disciples had uh, gone elsewhere during this message. And so he takes a seat opposite the treasury. And if you have some diagrams of the temple in the back of your Bibles or somewhere, uh, this would have been in the court the women's court, the court of the women uh, in that segment of the uh, temple. I'll try to get a picture put up here. And uh, have that available for our next class together. All right. So Mark 12:41, he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. Now, again, I want to just set the context for this. When he leaves here very quickly, if you glance on down to, to chapter 13, how the next chapter begins here in Mark, as he was going out of the temple. One of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. So they depart the temple. They depart Jerusalem. They're headed down the valley and up to the other side where, where uh, the Mount of Olives is. And, and they're, they're pointing out the building. And this is the last time he leaves the building. All right, The last time he leaves the temple. He's not going to go back to the temple on Thursday. This is Wednesday night of the Passion Week and uh and he's not going to return to Jerusalem when he returns on Thursday it's uh to go to the upper room and partake of the of the Passover dinner dinner with his disciples so this is his final time in the temple his final public message and his final time walking out it'd be like walking out here and down the slope headed towards the the street and then someone looks up and says boy it's a beautiful building isn't it right and jesus says well guess what it's all getting torn down <laughs> So, And that leads into the Olivet Discourse, which uh, we have coming up after this episode. Episode 12 is going to be the Mount Olivet Discourse, and we'll have to spend quite a bit of time on that. So shortly before departing the temple for the last time, Jesus sat down and observed the treasury deposits. And he's sitting here and he's watching. And you've got to imagine what's going through his mind. Because he's already said a couple of times that, that Jerusalem, that the house is being left to them desolate. He's already said a couple of times that he wanted to gather them as a hen gathers her chicks, but they were unwilling. And, and just what is the sense of, of relief, or what is the sense of, what, what is the emotion when you've taught your last Bible class in the temple? And you know that within two days you're going to be on the cross. And so he sits down, and he starts watching, and he sees in action what it is he's actually been preaching against. If you peek back up to uh, verses 38 through 40, which is very abbreviated compared to Matthew 23, but in, in just these verses here, you'll notice part of the rebuke against the scribes, <clears throat> they walk around in long robes, they like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and place of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses. That's an interesting expression. We, we dealt with that in, the, in episode 10 in the outline there. We, we discussed that. But this is the, the immediate context right before this next episode comes in now, the one, one we're studying today where here's a widow and is her house being devoured when she's giving her last, uh, her last coin, her last two coins? Is, is this against her will? Is, this, is she being manipulated? And so it's, it's, we've got to discuss this because pr- if you read the commentaries, you're going to find there's basically two approaches to our episode today, to this widow's might. One is very positive, very complimentary very uh, very much uh, Jesus is praising her for what she 's doing, and the other is very hostile, very critical that Jesus is actually lamenting what she 's doing, that jesus is is um, upset that she is giving out the last two uh, uh, coins that she has, and they view it as kind of as a as a follow up to verse forty there where the the scribes are uh, devouring widows' houses. All right. So you have, you have those two primary interpretations. I'll tell you how I'm going to teach. I'm teaching the first way. I believe this is a positive example that hers was given for the right reasons, despite the the manipulations of the religious leaders and so forth. And I think we can demonstrate that contextually. We can demonstrate that exegetically and we can demonstrate that in the uh, in the comparison of Scripture with Scripture by virtue of the vocabulary that we have here that matches our studies in Second Corinthians chapter eight. So this is her free will offering. This is her love at work. And uh, and the Lord praises this. And you'll see that as we go through exegetically what his words are to the disciples in uh, in verses 43 and 44. So Jesus sat down and observed the treasury deposits. Now, something else you're going to observe if you read the exegetical commentaries. Um, the verb tenses in this passage are awesome. Absolutely awesome. And, and we're not going to do a lot of vocabulary work in this. It's pretty straightforward, I think, as far as the, the vocabulary goes. But but what really jumps out at you are the different verb tenses. So, Jesus sat down. That's an aorist participle. Jesus sat down. That's an aorist participle. And it basically just shows the attendant circumstances before the action of the main verb. And then He began observing. And that's an imperfect tense to this verb. So He sat down as an aorist participle so that He could then begin Observing. And this one I will give you vocabulary for because it's, it, I think it, it unfolds the meaning of certain things in, in very neat ways. Uh, but it's an imperfect tense. An imperfect tense is drawn out over time. An imperfect tense uh, shows that he, was, he didn't just sit there and look once. He just was looking for an ongoing period of time, however long it took for his disciples. All right. And began observing, imperfect, how the crowd was throwing copper into the treasury. How the crowd was throwing copper into the treasury. And the verb for throwing copper uh is, is a present tense. So again, it's continuous action in present time. It's a long ongoing process. So as the crowds were were casting their coins in, Jesus was watching how they were doing it. All right. And it was a it wasn't just a quick glance. And it wasn't just a casual glance either. It was a careful consideration. I'll give that to you under point B. So the verb tenses are interesting in this. Jesus sat down, as participle, began observing in the imperfect tense, how the crowd was throwing, really the putting. The verb is bolo to throw, to cast or to throw. And uh, there were even a couple of uh, uh, commentators that, uh, that that found something forceful about it, and they, they they I think they camped on it a little too harshly because. The same verb is used for the widow. And I don't think she was all that athletic, <laughs> you know, about throwing her coin in. You know, um, some were really trumpeting the fact that they were slamming the coins in or throwing the coins in as if somehow that, you know, the louder they could make the jingle of the metal on metal, the, you know, the more impressive it was sounding and so forth. And I, I think that stretches the point uh, to observe the verb bolo and then see the same verb that she's using um, I think it's interesting. Admittedly, um, she's using it in the aorist tense and they're using it in the present tense, but I still think it's a bit of a stretch. And it misses the point. The point is is that Jesus was, uh, was evaluating the heart attitude. And that's what the rewardability is for all grace giving. What was her heart attitude? What was their heart attitude? And uh, why is it that hers is greater than theirs combined? All right, Her offering exceeds their offerings put together. And that we have to uh, understand is the impact of what he's saying here, which is an item of praise. It is an item of, of, uh, of glory to the Father that uh, he doesn't use the, the high and mighty and the powerful and the, the religious leaders here and, and, uh, and so forth. Point B, Jesus made a thoughtful and reasoned observation first thing we want to observe here is that it's not blepo; <laughs> It's theoreo. Jesus made a thoughtful and reasoned observation. This is where you're looking at something and you're trying to understand it. You're looking at something and you're observing how it unfolds. Um, theoreo. Does that remind you of any English words? Yeah, I've got a theory about that, okay? It also, um, in its cognate noun form, uh, sits underneath the concept of theater, right? Theater. And what do you do at the theater? You're watching. Yeah, you're observing. And and, uh, and so it's interesting. And so Jesus has his own theater uh, performance being played out right in front of him. He takes his seat, and he's watching, and he's seeing this theater, this drama, played out right before him. And, and the, the message he just got done teaching about all of the pride and all the ostentatious uh, attitudes and all of the, uh, the ways that the scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, the way that they operate. He just spent, I don't know how long, preaching that message in Matthew 23. And now he sits down and he sees a theatrical performance of exactly that concept. All right. But the closing act, the closing act was this widow. And this poor widow comes up and she probably encouraged him more. Then all 12 of his apostles, right, put together uh, just her little act of faith and uh, the fruit that she bore. And if you want to consider, uh, say, well, what can God do with just two mites? You know, that's a, that's a pittance. It's a, it's a pathetic little amount of money. It's not even worth counting. You know, I believe God's done a tremendous amount with those two mites. Because for 2000 years now, it's been preached in Christian churches. For 2,000 years now, it's been motivating believers in principles of grace and love and sacrifice. And so uh, that widow has done more with her two mites than um, certainly than uh, these guys and all their gold and silver and everything else. So if you want to do a word study in Theoreo, I would encourage that. T-H-E-O-R-E-O. It's number 2334 in the Strong's Concordance. Strong's number 2334 and you have 58 New Testament Uses. I won't say a whole lot more about it other than to say it's not blepo. Okay. blepo is a basic verb. Blepo means just basically to look, to see, to see something. All right. And so, you know, it may be, it doesn't have to be at length and you don't have to really put much thought into it. All right. So I see, um, I see that the doors are closed. All right. I see that. But I'm not staring at the doors. I'm not observing the doors. I'm not, my attention isn't focused on those doors. I'm not considering um, you know, who might come in those doors next? Okay? That's the difference between theoreo and blepo. Okay? There's other words too. There's horao, you know, where we get horizon, where you kind of scan the whole width of something and try to get the full picture of something. There, there's several vivid terms related to seeing and perceiving. And uh, this one I find interesting. Because this one is what actually forms the basis for Jesus' next message. Okay? He's going to see something. He's going to see more than he thinks he sees. Uh, more than what a human would see. All right. So let's look at this. Finally, uh, the third subpoint here his consideration centered on the manner, i.e., the attitude of the activity. He wasn't counting the coins, although he knows for a fact that she gave to Lepta. Um, he wasn't counting. He's not an accountant. He's not issuing a receipt for the, the funds that were donated. His consideration centered on the manner, the adverb post, P-O-S. Um, how are they giving? Not just that they are giving, but how are they giving? The rich folks putting in vast sums or this poor widow with her two mites? Okay. They're mites, by the way, if you have a King James or New King James translation. They're uh, small copper coins if you have a New American Standard translation, which amount to a cent. Again, New American Standard. Uh, I'll talk about the coinage here in just a little bit. It's not, to me, it's, it's funny how commentaries will spend pages after pages after page dealing with the denomination of coins and their relative value and so forth, and, uh, and miss the main impact of this message. Of course, they're small coins, and they're giving lots of money, and that's important, but that is only the stage by which the principle can be unfolded. And if we get lost in a study on currency valuations, then uh, we're missing the principle that comes out of this contrast. But the attitude of the activity, how is it being given? Uh, the adverb "posts." he began observing how. The manner or the means or the attitude the people were putting money into the treasury. And then down in verse 44, they all put in out of their surplus. Out of their surplus. Their spare change. Their who cares money. But she, out of her poverty, her deprivation, and this is the vocabulary we have from Second Corinthians, uh, her deficiency, her lack, She put in all that she owned. This is not who cares, throw away money. This is everything. Her last, not only are they two mites, they're her last two mites. And if she had two left, she could have given one and kept the other, but she gave them both. What does that mean? What's the significance there? All she had to live on. Her livelihood. Her livelihood. And this is what Jesus gives us the explanation for his statement that she has put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. Her two mites were greater than all the other contributions combined. So Jesus' consideration centered on the manner, the attitude of the activity. And I think that's interesting. Now, let me go to Edersham. I meant to start this up earlier. It won't take too long. Under point two, Edersheim details 13. This is Alfred. Is that his first name? Edersheim wrote lives and times of Jesus, the Messiah. He wrote the temple and its services. That's what we're going to look at here. Edersheim details 13 trumpet shaped collection receptacles. There were 13 of them. They were shaped like a shofar, like like a ram trumpet, ram horn trumpet. And they were positioned in the women's court. Um, in the, that particular courtyard of the temple. It was the largest courtyard of the temple. Uh, we, there's kind of a misnomer. People think the women's court meant it was only women exclusively. Not true. Uh, the women's court was basically the, the court that everybody went to, including the women. Uh, they, the women could not go into the, the court of Israel. That was limited to the men. And uh, Gentiles, of course, were in the outer court, the Gentile court. Uh, but the women's court was available to men and women both, uh, families, and that tended to be where everybody gathered. That's where all the offerings were given. All the family worship took place there. And then the men would go from there into the inner court, for the court of Israel for the Jewish men. So Edersheim details these 13 collection receptacles. and They were shaped like trumpets. Uh, they had a narrow opening at the top and then they opened up to a larger kind of a, a bell or a horn shaped thing at the bottom. And um, let me pull this up here. Edersheim on the temple. I meant to have this open earlier and forgot. Edersheim. Bible history, Old Testament, life and times of Jesus, the Messiah, sketches of Jewish social life in the days of Christ, and the temple. It's ministry and services as they were in the time of Jesus Christ. All of these are awesome, by the way. And uh, encourage you to, uh, even if you don't like history, reading these will help you to like history all right page 48 the court of the women the court of the women obtained its name not from the appropriation not from its appropriation to the exclusive use of women but because they were not allowed to proceed farther except for sacrificial purposes indeed this was probably the common place for worship the females occupying according to jewish tradition only a raised gallery along three sides of the court this court covered a space upwards of 200 feet square all around ran a simple colonnade, and within it, against the wall, the 13 chests, or trumpets, for charitable contributions were placed. And in the, there's another play on words here. Remember when Jesus was saying, when you give, uh, you know, not let your right hand, know what your left hand is doing, right? Or the other way around. And he said, uh, the hypocrites, they trumpet their giving, right? Well, That that trumpeting is used idiomatically, of course, for showing off or broadcasting, but it also is a a connection, a play on words connection with the shape of these these, uh, receptacles. These 13 chests were narrow at the mouth and wide at the bottom, shaped like trumpets, uh, whence their name. Their specific objects were carefully marked on them. Nine were for the receipt of what was legally due by worshipers. The other four for strictly voluntary gifts. Um, trumpets 1 and 2, there's the listing of them here, were appropriated to the half shekel temple tribute of the current and past year. Uh, into Trumpet 3, those women who had to bring turtle doves for a uh, burnt in a sin offering dropped their equivalent in money, which was daily taken out and a corresponding number of turtle doves offered. This not only saved the labor of so many separate sacrifices, but spared the modesty of those who might not wish to have the occasion or the circumstances of their offering to be publicly known. So granted a measure of of, uh, discretion there, that uh, that you were in the more humble financial circumstances and your offering was a a turtle dove instead of a more expensive uh, sacrifice. Mary, the mother of Jesus, must have dropped the value of her offering when the aged uh, Simeon took the infant Savior in his arms and blessed God. Trumpet four similarly received the value of the offerings of the young pigeons. In trumpet five, contributions for the wood used in the temple. In trumpet six for the incense and trumpet seven for the golden vessels for the ministry were deposited. If a man had put aside a certain sum for a sin offering and any money was left over after its purchase, it was cast into trumpet eight. Similarly, trumpets nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen were destined uh, for what was left over from trespass offerings, offerings of birds, the offering of the Nazarite, of the cleansed leper, and voluntary offerings. In all probability, this space where the thirteen trumpets were placed was the treasury where Jesus taught on that that memorable feast of tabernacles. John chapter uh, 7. We can also understand how, from the peculiar and known destination of each of these 13 trumpets, the Lord could distinguish the contributions of the rich who cast in of their abundance from that of the poor widow who had of her penury had given all the living that she had. And that's the episode that we're studying today. There was also a special treasury chamber into which, at certain times, they carried the contents of the 13 chests, and besides, what was called a chamber of the silent, where a devout persons secretly deposited money, afterwards secretly employed for educating children of the pious poor. Maybe we need to create a chamber of the silent <laughs> here at Austin Bible Church. We'll designate that. It is probably an ironical allusion to the form and name of these treasure chests that the Lord, making use of the word trumpet, describes the conduct of those who in their almsgiving sought glory from men as sounding a trumpet before them. That is, carrying before them, as it were, in full display, one of these trumpet-shaped alms boxes. In fact, the Talmud even calls them trumpets. And as it were, sounding the trumpet. All right, so that's the description by Edersheim there in the temple. And uh, listed that for you as point two in the outline. Now, the contrast. Many of the rich people, many rich people were throwing in much. Many rich people were throwing in much. And again, it's the imperfect tense, it's stressing the continuous action. But one poor widow came in, and in an heiress tense, one poor widow came in and threw in two lepta, two little coins. The smallest coin in circulation. In fact, <laughs> it was the smallest coin in Greek circulation in the eastern part of the empire. It was uh, the, in Roman circulation, they didn't they didn't issue anything this this small. All right, uh, the one, one level up from this was the smallest that uh, that the Romans would issue. So many rich people were throwing in much, but one poor widow came and threw in two lepta. That's the contrast. And, uh, and this, is, this is important because this is very visually teaching us that the, the absolute cash value of the giving is not the, the consideration as to what the father finds acceptable, unacceptable, greater or lesser. All right, It has nothing to do with the raw amount. And I hope if we, if we haven't caught on to that already in Second Corinthians, we can catch on to it here or maybe combine the two and, and figure it out in both places, okay? Uh, God is not impressed with an offering because it's a large offering. And he doesn't say that large is better than small, okay? In some ways, we're handicapped. We're trapped by our American culture where faster is always better than slower, where bigger is always better than smaller, right? More is obviously better than less, Obviously, you know, and, and a ministry is, is gauged by, you know, the parking spaces and the, <laughs> the number of seats in the auditorium and, uh, and things of that nature. Well, this passage teaches us that two mites actually outweighs the amount. We don't even know the amount of the uh, of these rich people and what they're given. You know, um, interesting consideration. So this is the contrast. And this is what the Lord is observing. So there were many. How many? Don't know. Doesn't matter. Rich. How rich? Don't know. Doesn't matter. (laughs) And they were throwing in much. How much? Don't know. Doesn't matter. Okay? Because regardless of how many people, and regardless of how rich they were, and regardless of how much they were throwing in, it still did not measure what this widow was doing. Because the heart attitude for this widow was, was the essence. Three times over, three times over, the heart of this widow was pleasing to God. And that's the impact of this passage. So we've got we to gotta put our arms around and figure it out. All right, now the lepta. Lepta is plural. The lepton is singular. Although I messed up and called it two leptons down there at the bottom, that's fine. <laughs> All right, I could have said two lepta. Subpoint A the lepton was the smallest coin in circulation. I should say that's in Greek circulation. A denarius, we've studied denarius before, uh, repeatedly actually. The denarius has come up a lot of times. The denarius equaled one day's wage. And uh, that came up most recently in the parable of the laborers in Matthew chapter 20. And those early morning laborers agreed to work all day, 12 hours, for for a denarius. And then additional workers at different times of the day, including the one-hour guys that just got hired at 5 o'clock, they worked a single hour and they got paid a denarius. A denarius equaled one day's wage. It could be divided into 16 Assyrians in Aserion, A-S-S-A-R-I-O-N, uh, was, that's the longer form. It was rarely called that. It was usually just called an ass, all right? But English commentaries aren't comfortable writing the word ass that many times in their descriptions. Kind of like Balaam's donkey and other, th- other issues there. So uh, we'll use the longer form, Asarion. okay? Now, if you're going to get a denarius for a full day's work, it was actually much more convenient to have it broken down into 16 Aserion. The Aserion was really the, I think, from what I've read anyway, I think the Aserion was really the main unit of purchase. Uh, the main unit uh, of purchase would be you could spend an Aserion or two and what have you. That would be the, the coin most commonly in circulation, which you would break down your, your daily paycheck into um, 16 Aserions. And then an Aser, so think of an Aserion as a dollar right? And then a dollar has four quarters, an asarion equal to four quadrons. Quadrons, which basically means a fourth, right? One fourth of what? Of an, of an ass, of an asarion. And uh, 16 of those asarions would equal the denarius, which would be equal to a day's wages for a common laborer. Gives you a little idea on the economics of, of, uh, of the day. Well, Basically, in in the West, in, in in Roman circulation, the quadron would be the smallest coin, um, but the Greeks had smaller coins, including the uh, the lepton, and uh, which it took two lepton to uh, to make a quadron. So basically, we're looking at here one hundred one one hundred and twenty-eighth of a denarius is what this coin is. All right, just a fractional fractional amount. Uh, estimated that. Basically, all that could be purchased with two uh, leptons would be a handful of, of flour. One handful of flour uh, for, the, for the quadrant would be a, a purchasing equivalent there. And so that's what we're dealing with. Now, the value of the rich people's donation, it's not known. The cash value of the rich people's donation is not known, but is irrelevant to the story. And to the doctrine that this story supplies. The cash value of the rich people's donation is not known. But is irrelevant to the story. And the doctrine this story supplies. Uh, As Jesus is about to say here in chapter 13. This temple is getting torn down. (laughs) This temple is going to be destroyed. So all of the gold in it is going to be plundered. All the wealth from it is going to be carried off. What is the eternal value of of what they're donating? And as I already said, the eternal value of this widow is incalculable. Only God knows the fruit that's been born for the last 2,000 years of of Bible preaching where this woman's example serves to encourage grace on the part of the body of Christ. It's like uh, the rich man in Lazarus. We know Lazarus' name. <laughs> Who's the rich man? Alright. We don't know. Then that bothered the early church so much they made up a name for him. They called him Dives. Well, from the Latin uh, in the Vulgate there. But uh the our Bible doesn't tell us what his name is. I think that's on purpose. How much does this widow give Two Lepta? We know that. How much did these rich people give? We don't know. We don't know that. And, and to me, does that in itself not teach how forgettable the life of the unbeliever is? How unforgettable the, uh, the life of, of pride and self exaltation is? When, when he said, Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full, he meant exactly that. When they are noticed by men, that's their reward. And they're getting nothing after that. It will not be remembered at the judgment seat of Christ. It's not gold, silver, precious stones laid up in heaven, it's not rewarded. Their reward is having been noticed by men. So I hope you impressed a lot of men. Because <laughs> that's all the reward you're getting. And your name will not be remembered. We have this in our culture too, right? For, for, for large donations, you get to put your name on stuff. <laughs> wow. Wow. Boy Scouts are building a new headquarters up the highway and they're building a new scout shop and different things and they're really hitting up donations really hard, you know. And I, I'm an Eagle Scout and I've given things over the years, but I'm not giving the kind of money they're looking for to get my name on a gift shop, you know, a scout shop, okay? I might qualify for a brick or something. And <laughs> something of that. But rather than naming after the big donations, how about the anonymous heroes that gave two mites? The two mites that that because God is the one who multiplies like the loaves and the fishes, God takes these two mites and He just magnifies them beyond anything imaginable. I could I could I could spend all day on this because I I just see what uh, Jim and Phyllis Myers do in Ukraine on a pretty you know small budget when it comes right down to it. And I see what they do in a very quiet way, an anonymous way. And then you got these other groups that are going over there and pouring millions and millions of dollars into, into their operations. And uh, I just think it's neat the way the Lord operates. Point four. And this is where we really, I think this is where most people miss the point. Jesus perceives comprehensive information regarding this widow. Jesus perceives comprehensive information regarding this widow. How does he know? Well, first of all, if he's across from the treasury, I don't know what the distance is. The square is 200 feet by 200 feet. That's quite a distance. Okay, It's like from here to there is only 35 feet. So, um, you know, we're talking from here to the end of the next parking lot over there. It's a large area. All right. And if, uh, you know, Radley was to walk over there and drop some coins in the brown box, from here, would I have any clue how many coins he put in? Would I have any clue what kind of coins they were? Okay, and I'm only 35 feet away. Who knows what the distance was between Jesus and this widow? We have no idea. How does he know that there's two coins? How does he know that they're Lepta? How does he know that it's all she has? How does he know that this is her livelihood? How does he know that she um, is deprived? Okay. might be able to tell from the quality of the clothes she's wearing, perhaps uh, what her economics are just based on, on, on the clothes she's wearing. But, but he knows a lot that he shouldn't know, that human beings would not normally know. All right. And, but it's not omniscience. I believe this is the, the prophetic gift at work. God the Father gave to him a prophetic insight that as he's watching as he's theorizing right as he's watching and then the Spirit of God gives him this perception Jesus perceives comprehensive information and it's I've, I've, we've illustrated this before it's like with Samuel and, and the coming of King Saul right and and prophetically Samuel is told. Um, about this time tomorrow this man's going to come looking for his donkeys okay not omniscience it's just the 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 briefing the heads up that prophets receive in the old testament and so i can I can envision this happening here as well this he's he's watching them all and the, and the Holy Spirit is communicating to him that these rich people are just giving their throwaway money and they don't even care they're just doing it to show off they're just doing it and it doesn't cost them anything and this widow comes, and the Holy Spirit just reveals. This information it would not otherwise be known. And the Holy Spirit gets a hold of Jesus and says, look what she's doing. And then Jesus gathers his apostles around because this is an important principle. They've got to learn this. He's going to be on a cross in two days. He's going to be ascended in 40, 40 days after that. Right. 50 days. The Holy Spirit's going to descend and they're going to have to start the whole church. They're going to have to understand grace. They're going to understand what this principle here is all about. So he perceives comprehensive information regarding this widow that turns these observations into a significant message on grace giving. What started off as just people watching. You ever do that? Starts off as just people watching. You know, you're down at Town Lake and watching. All of a sudden, this inspiration comes to you and there is a powerful message that needs to be preached right here, right now. And he gathers his disciples around. All right, this is too important. This has to be taught. It has to be taught right now. they got to see what's going on. So, he called his disciples to himself. He called his disciples to himself. This is sub-point A. He called his disciples to himself for a divine message. When he says, Amin, Lego, Humin. This is, this is Bible class. <laughs> this is the Spirit of God coming upon him. This is truly, truly, I say to you. How many times do you see that in the Gospel record, right? And uh, why does the God who cannot lie have to say truly, <laughs> I say to you, He is the Amen, and yet He begins with His truly, or verily, if you're an old King James type. Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you, so it's usually amin, amin, lego, soy. If he's talking to a single individual here, it's amin, lego, humin. I say to y'all, all of y'all. And he calls them together for a divine message. He actually, proskaleo here in the participle, he calls them to himself. Wherever they were doing, whatever they were doing, it may be, you know, he's he's watching, just sitting here waiting to, for them to come so they could depart and... Uh, then he sees this widow and the Holy Spirit reveals to him the, the, the depth of what she's doing. The impact of what she's doing. And when that all comes down on him is when he starts to see his disciples walking in. And he sees his disciples walk in stands up and says, Come here guys, come here, come here. Right now, look at this. Look at this. Do you see this widow? So he called his disciples to himself for a divine message. Now, Here's his declaration, and this is why we cannot take this as a criticism of the widow, a criticism of the religious leaders. This is not a negative approach, and this is why all the, why all the uh, commenters that take this as a negative illustration are incorrect. Look at the content of what he says. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, and, and point to me one other place where amen, amen, lego soy, Where truly, truly, I say to you, is followed by something that is um, hostile or or, or detrimental to what he's observing. No, this is positive. Truly, I say to you, this poor woman, he's going to tell them what and he's going to tell them why. He tells them what in verse 43 and he tells them why in verse 44. This poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. That's what they have to know. And they have to know it now. they have to know it right here, right now, before she walks away. This has made an impact on him and he wants it to have an impact on them. So point B. He declares that the poor widow gave more than all the others he observed. He declares that the poor widow gave more than all the others he observed. And you know, uh, there's no indication here that they caught on to this. We're not told at the end of the chapter, you know, that the disciples uh, understood it or that they embraced it. Um, It is interesting because there have been plenty of times in this Life of Christ series where he's tried to teach similar things and they just weren't getting it. He warns them about leaven. He warns them about bread. They think, oh, we forgot to bring bread. And this is after he multiplied the loaves and fed the five thousand, then multiplied the loaves again and fed the four thousand. And they're still thinking in earthly terms, and they're failing to understand the the spiritual priorities that he's laying out for them. So it's almost like, okay, I got one more shot at this now. <laughs> right before we leave the temple, do you see this woman? If you can't figure out what I'm saying, watch her. <laughs> this woman has given more than all. The others combined. She put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. All right. And then he explains why. So the what is that she's given more. She only gave two lepta. That ought to be important. That ought to encourage us. Because we may not have a lot. We may only have, you know, 200 seats in a room. We may only have 80 parking spots. It's not the amount. It's not the, the the absolute value. All right. I was Talking to somebody the other day, and uh, oh, it was a family member, one of my wife's cousins, and they have a they're on the uh, missions committee of their church. And I won't tell you the number, but she uh, she was talking about you know they want to expand and support more missionaries. I was very Positive with that, encourage that, and then she apologized that her that their missions budget was so small. Well, our missions budget is more than our entire budget. <laughs> so It's all a matter of perspective, isn't it? You know. Anyway, um, it's not the absolute value. It's not the fact that it's two lepta. Her two lepta are more than everything they were pouring in. However much that was, and so we have got to understand that. God's expecting faithfulness on our part. Now, that's the what? The poor widow gave more than all the others he observed. They, they cannot walk away without recognizing that. And then the explanation in verse 44. Why? He has to explain the standard. Jesus explained the standard. The economy, the basis by which two leptons is more than all the money the rich people were giving. How can that be? What is the scale? What is the measure? Right? You know, children can figure this out. We got a couple of little girls here today. You know, when you you gotta understand what's more and what's less. If you have a quarter and I offer to give you three nickels, <laughs> is that a good deal? Yeah. I mean, you have one quarter and I have three nickels. So if I give you three and you give me one, isn't that pretty good? Would that be would that be smart? And you know, wait a minute, that's not smart. Because my one quarter is actually worth five nickels, isn't it? Twenty five cents equals twenty five cents, whether it's one quarter or five nickels. I mean, the adults are bored, they know what I'm going with this, but the children here today can figure this out. With, here's, Jesus is doing something very similar to that. How can two lepta be more than dozens or hundreds or thousands of, of coins that were given by these other people? How can two cents be more? It's because of the attitude. It's because of how it is revered by the Father who sees in secret. That's where the real accounting lies. The accounting doesn't lie on earth with the bank. The counting doesn't allow, uh, doesn't, uh, is not, the, the story's not over when the earthly banker deposits the, the receipts. It's the father who sees in secret who will repay. It's his standard. And when he sees love for his son, that's what's eternally rewarded. When he sees people that don't care, given things that don't matter to them anyway, that's, that, that's not honoring to his son. We've got to understand this as well. So he's explaining the standard. Alright. Hmm. So what is the standard? They on the one hand and she on the other. As you look at this, they put in out of their surplus. There is one description given for their offering. Just one description. It's a point one. It's a point one. The rich people gave with a single description of surplus. There's only one. Phrase that describes what their attitude was. There are three phrases that describe what her attitude is. But there's one phrase they gave out of their surplus. The widow gave in a threefold description threefold description of deficiency, totality, and livelihood. The widow gave in a threefold description of deficiency, totality, and livelihood. Next week, we're going to expand on this for you. Deficiency, totality, and livelihood. Unfortunately, fortunately, because we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 right now, we've already had the vocabulary that relates to abundance and deficiency. Okay? In, in our study as it pertains to the Corinthians and how they have an abundance, which is designed for the Judean deficiency. And the local church at Corinth is able to provide funds for the local believers there in Judea that were having famine and, 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 and de- uh, deficiency at the time. And so we've already had vocabulary studies related to this. The concepts will hopefully mesh together for us very well. But there's more than just the contrast between surplus and deficiency. There's a contrast between surplus and totality. And there's a uh, contrast between surplus... And livelihood. Because they only have one description for their, for their attitude. This widow has three. Deficiency, totality, and livelihood. For they all put out of their surplus. It was extra. But she, out of her... Well, it says poverty in the New American Standard Translation. I like deficiency. How we've been rendering it uh, in, uh, in our other studies. They have extra. She doesn't have enough. She does not have enough. She is in the red. Her income is insufficient. And yet, she has a love for the Lord and she has priorities. What does she intend to do by giving these last coins? What does she plan to do tomorrow? Does she have tomorrow? We'll come back next week. We're also going to go back to First Kings. I think the parallel to this is the widow of Zarephath in the Old Testament. And all she had was a handful of flour. And what was it that I said that two leptons could purchase? A handful of flour. I don't think that's an accident. The quantities are identical. And um, the prophet Elijah asked her to take that flour and bake him some bread. And only then could she take that same flour and bake herself some bread. So, we're going to talk about that. So, they've got a single description, she's got a threefold description. We're going to understand what is deficiency giving? Am I expected to give when my income is deficient? What is totality giving? Am I expected to give the totality of all that I own? And what is livelihood giving? Am I expected to give from the funds which allow me to physically live in this earth. So we've got deficiency giving, totality giving, livelihood giving. And um, just chew on that between now and next week. We'll come back one week from today, Lord willing, rapture pending, and we'll, uh, we'll begin to break those down for you. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for this widow. Father, uh, for the example that we have here, I thank you, Father, for the, uh, the way that these messages are coming together, not just here in in, in Corinth, but also, Father, in the book of Romans. Uh, all of these messages recently have been coming together in our various studies in, in very powerful ways. Thank you especially for the messages on grace. Thank you, Father, that, that this congregation gets to learn these doctrines and these principles right now at this time where we're being tested. Father, thank You for the financial testing. Thank You for the opportunity we have to walk by faith and apply grace and to do so for no other reason than on the basis of what Your Word teaches us, Father. We want to be making application. We want to learn what this widow's illustration is about. We want to learn what the Lord's exhortation is about. We want to make sure that our individual giving and our local church giving are lined up with New Testament principles that are grace upon grace upon grace. So, Father, I thank You that at this time, we get to face these tests with these power classes being taught. Well, it's a, it's a joy, Father. Thank You for being so faithful. We thank You in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.